0: Have you ever wondered what the world would be like if people really listened to each other? Me too. In a noisy world, how do we focus on listening to the things that matter? Do you feel heard? And are you able to make others feel heard? Join me and guests from around the world as we tackle these important questions and become better listeners along the way. I'm conductor and creator Timothy Myers, and this is Listening on Purpose. Our guest today is Dr. Nina Kraus. Dr. Kraus is a scientist and inventor, professor of neurobiology at Northwestern University, and director of the auditory neuroscience laboratory called BrainVolts. Dr. Kraus recently published a fascinating book of Sound Mind, How Our Brain Constructs a Meaningful Sonic World.
1: Nina, I'm really, really glad you're here today.
2: Thank you. I'm glad to be here too.
1: Your book of Sound Mind, How Our Brain Constructs a Meaningful Sonic World is a really fascinating read. And one of the things I love about it is that it starts with really the basics of how sound is created, what the elements are, the ingredients, and then it goes all the way, you know, how it travels, how it enters our ears, how the brain is shaped. And then importantly, then how the brain shapes how we hear and how meaning is created. And so I want to be sure to get to that. But before we dig in on the book, I would love to know what your first influential memory of sound was as a child?
2: I don't remember a particular sound, but I grew up in, in a household where more than one language was spoken. And my mom was a pianist. You know, and I, I loved playing underneath the piano. I'd bring all my little things there. And hmm. um it sounded so good. It felt so good to to be there. So whereas I, I can't really come up with a string of, of early memories. Um, but I will do my homework because I, I really like this assignment. Uh, I, I can tell you that my, my life uh, has always been mercifully very rich with sound.
1: Yeah, what a, what a gift. You know, I have a very distinctive memory, a first musical memory, a Native American Indian powwow. And I grew up in central Kansas and Most of my family was from Kansas and Oklahoma, and there was some Native American blood on my maternal grandmother's side. But I remember going, and it was at night, and you know, arriving and seeing all of this happening, and you know, sort of in addition to the sound of the drumming and everything, but also the the sight, the dancing, and the the energy that the sound provided in the space. And it's just something I've never ever forgotten. I don't remember. Crazy specifics about it. But I just there is that environmental impact of that memory for me.
2: Yeah, and, and I think that, that it speaks to probably the there are a number of themes in my book, but the you know the one of the biggest ones is that the hearing brain is vast. And in the same way as you know, you were experiencing this scene through sound, what we do know biologically is that. Our sound, our hearing brain engages how we feel, how we move, yes, what we know, what we remember, what we pay attention to, and how we combine our information from other senses. The hearing brain, you know, the hearing brain is vast. And the formal way of saying this is that the hearing brain engages our cognitive, how we think, sensory our other senses, motor, how we move and reward how we feel systems our cognitive sensory motor and reward yes. networks and we know this you know we we can measure responses from auditory neurons that are clearly a composite of information that is combined from all of these different neural, Happenings, and I think that one of the really key features of listening is that we are all listening with a different sound mind,
1: right? Which you refer to uh, in the book as a, a sonic fingerprint at one point, which I've, I love. I love that term. And there is a one something about one of the categories that you explore on uh, volts that I want to come back to. But before we get there. I wonder if we could just go back a little further into you were interviewed for an article in 2018 in which you said that sound processing is one of the hardest jobs we ask our brain to do because it involves processing on the order of microseconds. So I would love to just have a a little chat about what exactly from a scientific perspective, what happens when we hear sound?
2: Let's start with sound itself. So sound... Consists of ingredients and you know, Well, first of all, you know, we, we really need to acknowledge that um, I think one of the reasons that that sound is so under recognized and underappreciated is because it's invisible and If you take a, a visual object, you know I'm holding this pen and it's got a, a shape a size color texture and it has these ingredients obvious sound also has ingredients and of course, you know that they can—they are pitch and timing, timbre, harmonics, phase, loudness—all of these uh, ingredients are. Um, they're part of of sound, and we can measure. So sound is really mm-hmm. t- is movement. It's the movement of air, and we can measure that movement of air, and we can think of it in terms of you know, what, what is the fundamental frequency? What are the harmonics? What is the phase? What is, you know, what are the ingredients? What are the different ingredients in the sound wave? So you have a sound wave that then the brain has to make sense of. And these sound waves are happening across a broad time scale. So they're happening on the one hand with microsecond precision, really, really fast. And so it, it puts all kinds of demands on our brain that, for example, you know, with vision, You know, vision is 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 much slower, and you know, sound just inherently really you know the differences between a D and a T and a B. You know, this happens very. This is in 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 milliseconds, microseconds, and the brain has to you know simultaneously make sense of all of these ingredients. So you have the ingredients of sound, and the brain then. um, The metaphor that I like to use is I think of the ingredients of sound dumped into the brain so you have this mixing bowl of ingredients and then you have my metaphor for the brain is a mixing board yes so if you think of a mixing board with the different faders and each fader is reflecting how good a job your brain is doing at processing each ingredient so the ingredients can be you know the second harmonics the third harmonics the onset the various aspects of timing over microseconds, over seconds, it uh, pitch timing, timbre—that's kind of the the, the quick way of, of of talking about these ingredients and the, the brain. I mean, it, it 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 you know I hope that what comes across is my tremendous awe for what is going on uh, in the brain and how each one of these ingredients is processed in its own way and also uh, individually and together, uh, how it's affected by our experience, our life and sound. And so the the first part of my book is called How Sound Works. And that really is, Tim, just what you're saying, the, you know, what are the sound waves? What are the brain waves? And, and, And then how do we learn? What do we know biologically about how the signals outside the head, the sound waves, combined with the signals inside the head which are the brain waves and then we learn to make mm-hmm. sense of the world so that's kind of starting out with you know some some knowledge of 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 biology this is a story that i have told i have heard i have read time and time again i'm like a little kid who wants to hear the same story again you know tell me about Tell me about sound. Tell me about how the brain just makes any sense out of it. You know, tell me about it. And so that first third of the book is, is about that. And, and then most of the book, two-thirds of it, is about our sonic selves, which is about how our life and sound makes us who we are. Um, then finally, the the last chapter is is a call to action. Which is really to get all of us to think about how can we create the best sonic world for our brains, for our children, for our society, for medical yes. therapies. How can we construct? You know, it's not only how our brain constructs a meaningful sonic world, but we have a responsibility to construct our own sonic worlds. And that's a really big deal, you know. Your your project is a and an, a way of creating a a sonic world that is specific to you know to honoring sound and, and listening.
1: Yeah, it's that reminds me of uh, on the Brainvolts website. There's a section that's listening in noise, and so explores you know what you call auditory scene analysis, which is something that we all do all the time right is pulling the relevant sounds out of the irrelevant. But in this exploration that we've been doing, it's really been incredible to see <laughs> to see or to hear how unintentional we are about sound most of the time right So when I, of course in a rehearsal I'm that's really what I'm in, most intentional about is the sound and comparing it to, okay, does that match my vision for what I want the sound in this moment to be? What you know, what are the various ingredients of the sound like you're talking about, pitch, timbre, timing, all of those things. Are those things happening the way that they need to happen for this to you know, be true to the composer's vision? But then as soon as I leave the concert hall, then all of a sudden there's just this cacophonous world that is doing a lot more damage to us than we realize, I think.
2: Yeah, that that's a whole topic, um, you know, on, on noise, and and I think you know we should we should probably talk about that. I have a, there's a whole chapter about that, but but just getting back to to listening in a complex soundscape, it, it, you know, it turns out I mean we know biologically that conductors are are the best. Conductors are so good at picking out. Uh, the relevant sounds in a complex soundscape Mm -hmm. because, you know, a lot of people think that it has to do just with localization of just knowing where the sound's coming from. That's just a part of it. The, you know, the, the big part of it is just as you, as you said, it's an auditory scene analysis. So you are analyzing the whole scene and you have a sense of how the individual parts are coming together. And this is what we are asked to do when we're talking to each other in a noisy restaurant, classroom, in, in, in a, if we're riding in a truck, or you know, any time there's noise, which is almost always, yes, we have to make sense of sound and noise. And that turns out to be really difficult. And it challenges the nerve, the, the, the hearing brain, mm-hmm. you know, the hearing brain of pretty much anyone is pretty good at making sense of some sound in unchallenging listening environments, like in quiet. Mm. But the minute you start making it more complicated, which you know you have multiple people in a room and they're talking, and now you start thinking about the acoustics of the room, and all of that then really challenges the brain that yeah. we need to, you know, really makes sense
1: out of. Mm. I want to direct that at some point a little towards the meaning side of it and the individual part of it, right, that you talk about in the book of everyone having a unique, I think I said sonic fingerprint the first time around, but I think in the book you say biological fingerprint. But I want to step back to something real quick, and this is really early on in the book. You say, the sound of speech and music has privileged access to the brain's reward or emotional network. Speech and music might not have evolved if not for the deep emotional feelings of connections with other humans that arise during these communal activities. And I just tell you, like, I get, I mean, I just read that quote back and I just got goosebumps thinking that <laughs> you did too. Good. But, you know, what, uh, what caught my interest here is the distinction of communal activities, and, and how there's an interdependence here between the listening brain, our individual biological sonic fingerprints, the context. But as a conductor, I feel like one of the greatest things I can contribute is providing these communal experiences where that you know, sort of emotional jungle gym is available for people to swing on and to, and to feel things that they might not normally feel. And I think during COVID, one of the things I missed the most about not doing live performance was that lack of community and connection, not just between myself and the musicians, but, you know, the audience in a hall is contributing greatly to the sonic landscape of a performance and the energy. For you, though, what I, that's why I related to that comment about the communal element. Why is the Camille element important to you in, in these studies?
2: Well, it's important to me, and I think it should be important to everyone, but we're just not aware often about how important it is. Because you know, if, if I had to, to say, boil my book down of sound mind into three words, it would be sound connects us.
1: Mm, beautiful.
2: So think about, I mean, think about what you and I are doing right now. Mm-hmm. We don't have a script. No. <laughs> right? So, so, you know, we are, I'm, I'm listening to you, you're listening to me. We're going back and forth. It's what Ian McGilchrist calls betweenness.
1: Oh, I love that.
2: So, you know, this, this betweenness between, you know, you and I, it's a reverberation. Mm-hmm. And what I say depends on how you react and how you react depends on what I say and sound. Sound is sound is alive. Yes, sound is alive. It's very different. I, you know, we can communicate through sound the way we're doing right now, or we can write each other text. That is not alive, right? It's, right. It's, and and we can uh, you know we write the text and curate it and make it exactly how we want it to be. But you know, sound it connects us. It's this conversation, just inherently with. Another person, and with, you know, with other living things in the world, one of the biggest examples. So, you know, again, reaching back to my my childhood, one of the languages that I grew up speaking is harmony. Mm-hmm. I, I can just sing harmony, and I don't know how I do it. Just as I don't know how I speak Italian, but you know, I just do. And singing harmony is one of the best examples of this between this, this back and forth, you know, if, if you and I are singing harmony, right. I am listening to, to you and you're listening to me, and we're adjusting our motor movements and our feelings and what we know. We're just going back and forth and, and you know, we are connected. Mm-hmm. Sound connects us. And in this world which is increasingly visually biased, And noisy so that, you know, we can't even, there's so much racket, we can't even understand what's being said. You know, our ability to use sound is diminishing. Yes. And in a world where we are more and more divisive in terms of, oh yeah, I I think this and, you know, these other guys are the bad guys and, you know, and, and there's so little nuance where sound, you know, sound connects us. In a way that we desperately need, and it, it connects us. Sound so depends on context. Yes, and and so there isn't, you know. Oh yeah, this is absolutely the way things are. It's a back and forth.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's alive. It's a back and forth. It's beautiful.
1: It is beautiful. I I love that. As sound connects us. And I was just thinking while you were speaking, sound. And listening, it, it requires trust. It requires a level of vulnerability, right? Because in a conversation for you to say something, I mean, it, you're, you're using your voice, which can, you know, is also, it can be a delicate thing and everyone's is different. It's a unique, talk about a unique, you know, fingerprint, but then, you know, also the way that the person is listening and like, just like if we were singing harmony together, right. How that's, there's a level of vulnerability required to do that successfully that we completely miss out on when we take things only into the written world, because then it's really up to the other person a lot in a lot of ways to create context.
2: I think an important point because you're bringing up the written word, you know, humans have been communicating, or living things have been communicating with each other through sound for hundreds mm-hmm. of thousands of years. Writing is maybe 5,000 years old. So if you think of of our biological selves,
1: right, Hmm.
2: evolved as creatures, we have evolved to be deeply, deeply rooted in sound, and we're losing that.
1: Wow. That made me a little emotional to think about, actually. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, you know, we've talked about a lot of great things about sound and how we process it and the ingredients. I would love to move to talking about meaning. And I, I know that that could be defined a couple of different ways, probably. But, you know, for you, where does meaning come into the picture after the sound is processed or the brain has received it? How are we creating that? You mentioned earlier, of course, you can train it, right? So you train a certain response, like the animal hears a certain sound and they know they might get a, a, you know, a treat or something like that. But it seems as though we're all creating meaning from sound all of the time. And it's even different between different people. Like you were talking about, all, you know, we, all this tension we have among different groups of people that probably have a whole lot in common, uh, if we actually listened, where does meaning come into sound scientifically and then beyond science?
2: Beautiful question. And I think, you know, we might be thinking of it backwards to be thinking that, you know, sound is coming into the brain and then we're creating meaning. mean, really what I think has happened, you know, the, the, the brain is an organ of prediction. And, you know, you know, you know a lot about sound. And even before baby's born, baby's been listening ever since at least three months gestation, baby can hear.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, so so you know, we learn to make meaning. You know, the, the, the baby already knows that that there is this this, this sonic world and that, that certain things happen having to do with the sounds that they're hearing, you know, when they're born they write away. you know we learn the sounds of, of, of you know mother's voice that we've already heard in the womb mm-hmm. and and the songs that that you know we'd heard through the womb we, we already we can remember we have those memories. So we you know we have the you know we, we are our sonic memories.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so we already have all this meaning. And then if something happens in the world, so I'm listening now, to the concert that you are, are conducting, it is coming to me, to my sound mind that already has lots of meaning. There's lots of predictions, there are lots of things. And that sound mind of mine will be reacting to the sound that is happening in the moment. And so, you know, you have this big font mm. of meaning and who you are sonically. And, you know, and on, on top of that, it helps, you know, you can react to the sounds in the moment. So, you know, you predict certain things. And then when, you know, also our, our, our sound mind is very, very good at picking up deviations from what we predict. And, you know, again, imagine from an evolutionary standpoint, you've got some critter who is listening to the wind and you're, the, the, the leaves and the branches are making a certain noise, certain sounds. And, and then there is this other sound that is kind of different.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: that could signal uh, something that's going to eat you or right. something that you might want to eat or <laughs> mate with. Right. It's, it's essential for our survival
1: mm-hmm.
2: that we be in tune. Yes. Now, we already have a, a sound mind that is in tune to the world up until this point. And then, you know, now I want, I can be in tune with, you know, what you're bringing on mm. in terms of the music that you're creating and, and, and that I, I get to listen to.
1: Yeah. It's interesting to me to think about something like art, like music departs from the scientific elements, right? That there's a there's a point of departure there. We've talked about the ingredients of sound and so what it actually is, and if we took you know you know an orchestra playing a chord, exactly what it would look like, and you can break down all those elements, but that there's something sometimes with the communal element that you have talked about, but there's something magical that happens beyond that, right? The the sum is definitely greater than the parts when it comes to an experience like music and music of all kinds uh i you know I, I think i'm not genre restricted when i say that right and that there's something that that can really magically happen even when you know what's going to happen right or you know on the page what's going to happen but that there's something that's being created anew every time
2: yeah and 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 the context again mm-hmm. is really important of you know the context, you know if you got to be flat, whatever context you put that in, be flat, just be flat, right?
1: But it's different than A sharp. <laughs> yeah, so
2: depending on the context you put it in, yeah. that that's that's important. Yeah, you know what you bring to you can have the same score, but mm-hmm. you know today you're feeling a certain way, or uh, you know you're you're playing it a certain way, you're hearing some new parts that you hadn't recognized before. You know, and, and again, the hearing brain is vast. Cognitive sensory motor reward networks. And what my, my, my piano teacher says, he says, if it feels good, it sounds good. <laughs>
1: I, I love that. So,
2: so, so you know, if you're playing and, and now it's feeling good, the sound that one can measure is going to be different mm-hmm. from when you're not having that that feeling. But I think that at the root of your question is a deep, deep, deep point which is about science and art and about uh, the limitations of science mm. you know and, and i think that science is even more grand and wonderful if we acknowledge the limitations mm-hmm. and we acknowledge you know for example you know science depends a lot on the things that we can measure right well you know try measuring wisdom right there, there are so many things and 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 also, you know, science has this this, I think, bad reputation of thinking that that it would provide all the answers mm. and, and often or even an answer. I mean, for most things, I mean, even the, the B flat, right? Mm-hmm. The answer is is it depends.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. Right? So
2: the context matters. Yeah. The context matters hugely. And then my students always—they want to know what is the answer. There is no the answer. Mm-hmm. Mostly, it's, it depends. Um, and even if you look at a, at a at a multiple guess question, you know, if you really think about it, you can think, oh, well, if I interpret it this way, it's a. If I interpret it this other way, if uh, you know, whatever. So I, I think there are very few answers, and there are so many questions. But, you know, we have, we certainly know some things, you know, we know a lot of biology. And I think that it's really important to take what we know and to put it into the context of whatever it is that we're trying to think about, acknowledging, all the time acknowledging that there are so many limitations in science. And there is this, this, also this magical, spiritual part of, you know, of, of science that we cannot lose sight of. And, and one of the reasons, so, so my book has has 80 illustrations yes. that were done in partnership with an artist. And, you know, it was just kind of to hit the reader over the head of, you know, look at the, at, at the art and science. There's so much art inherent in science. And so I think it's important to be thinking about science from a more holistic perspective of, 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 you know, especially if you're a biologist, you're studying biological systems that are, are, are changing all the time. Right. As I saw firsthand with my single neuron in, in the, the, the bunny. Yeah. So we need to embrace those limitations and, and have them uh, make what we're doing bigger and better and acknowledge what we don't know and, and, and all of the things that we cannot measure that still makes music music and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, are listening to it, what it is.
1: Yeah. I had written down um, in my notes here, another quote from the book that I really liked where you say, science is a deeply human endeavor. It is a humble attempt to cast a little light into the vast darkness of our ignorance. And I think that's a beautiful way to say it. But what you were just talking about also, it made me think about, I know sometimes when I'm looking at someone, I I know people are always listening to me with a certain context. But before reading your book, I had always assumed that that was a, a learned context from their background, maybe personally, psychologically, and our interactions together on that level. But it's a much deeper thing than that. Uh, you know this this fingerprint uh, you know from which someone is listening to you is way way deeper than just some learned behavior from an experience in life or something
2: absolutely yeah it's a, it's a culmination or a combination of of many different things and it continues to change you know one of the things that 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 really bothers me even from a, a musical standpoint that th- there is this this myth that if you don't start early, forget it as a musician. And you know, obviously, you know, we change, and the way we learn changes throughout our lives. Mm-hmm. But anyone can learn to, to play, to make music at any age. And, and, and again, we know this is the case from so many things, but you know, one of the reasons that I, I love biology is, is it grounds us into knowing that you know you can take an animal no matter how old and inexperienced and you can see that biological changes will occur when the animal makes sound to meaning mm. connections mm-hmm. that never goes away and you know and as you're older you're a different person you have a different sound mind and you bring that wisdom to you as you learn to play an instrument for the first time
1: I love that as a scientist, you still highlight the importance of learning to pay more attention to your gut feelings, which I always sort of relate to as listening to oneself. You know, you can listen to everything around you and make some, but are you really listening to yourself? And I've heard it recently referred to somebody was talking about when you're making a decision, is it a full body? Yes. Meaning, is, is every part of your body in accordance with that? with that decision. So it makes me wonder, I mean, is the gut feeling actually scientific at some level?
2: Definitely. And and also, I think that the that, that the distinction, you know, we've always we've tried, you know, I think, with humans and scientists and philosophers, you know, we try to put things into categories that, you know, mind and body and brain. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I think actually, you know, when I think about when I say Talk about what I do, you know, I study sound in the brain, but I am not thinking of the brain as distinct from the body. The body, our gut. It, uh, there, there's, there's so much input and output. There, I mean, you know, again, our body is connected to our brain in a deep biological manner. Yes. And and again, it has to do with our experience. If I'm going to invest in a stock, I can you know look at how stock A and stock B have done, and then I can say, oh well, look, they've done pretty much exactly the same. You know, I'm I'm just gonna you know mm-hmm. I'm gonna decide. I, I know nothing about stocks. Or I can go to a stockbroker and say, you know, I'm think they've got these these two stocks A and B. And of course, he can't read the future. He doesn't know. But what's your, you know, yeah. what what's your gut feeling? I would so much rather trust the decision he makes than my, you know. And 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 similarly, if if I have a musical idea, and I I, I bring it to you, or you know, to my husband, and 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 I say, well, you know, I I I'm so much enriched by someone who has had. Hmm. oceans of experience who can listen to an idea that I might have and there are no answers, but I would much rather know what you or my husband thinks, you know, somebody who hasn't really thought
1: right, right. much about music. Yeah, that makes complete sense. I'm wondering if there's a practice that you would invite the listeners of extra musical to try to deepen the way they listen and think about sound.
2: I think uh, we should all make it a point to make some music every day, and and I and I do say that it's making music in the same way as, you know, we're not going to get physically fit watching sports. We we actually need to do, and if it is just a matter of, of singing, you know. So when I wake up in the morning, that's not my most hopeful time. <laughs>
1: That's artfully said.
2: <laughs> uh, but I, I, I noticed just a number of years ago that if, if if I sit down at the piano and I'm just play for it can be as little as five minutes. you know, just whatever is on my mind or if there's a score there, I can just just sight read. It, it, it just doesn't matter, but you're making these notes, you're making the sound, you're making this music. And suddenly, I find, that if if I if I just do this, it it's not a you know it's certainly not a big time commitment, but it completely transforms my day. And so if you're actively engaged in making music every day for as little as five minutes and as long as you can manage to do it, that's that's my 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 recipe for developing a good sound. And and I do know scientifically that. If you're going to change, fundamentally change your sonic fingerprint, you know, who you are sonically, you need to make the music.
1: That's beautiful. I hear, I hear music being made in your background right now. Uh, I love it. My next question, and you sort of went there a little bit, and also you have written a couple beautiful articles about the importance of music education and, and, you know, really even pleas for it and how it's um, so essential in our society. But you know what would our world look like with more understanding of sound and listening
2: you know if every child had a really good musical education uh you know this this is to my view just from a, just from a biological standpoint that from my view every child should have a musical education you know if if you think that your education should involve something like learning to read and write it should also involve music Learning to make some music, mm-hmm. it helps us again connect. It, it, so mm-hmm. you know, on on the one hand, it, it it teaches us; it it changes our sound mind in a way that affects language. So there's a tremendous mm-hmm. overlap between the ingredients that are strengthened by making music, and the ingredients that are necessary for understanding language including reading and making Mm -hmm. music really strengthens your brain's ability to process the harmonics in sound which of course musically the harmonics is what distinguish two different instruments playing the same note but you can distinguish those different instruments because of the harmonics but the harmonics in speech distinguish a g from a d so you know, and it it's happening on a faster time scale, but, you know, it's harmonics. And so, so that's really important. Music, from a social standpoint, first of all, for an individual, you know, it gives an individual some confidence to learn, you know, to know that, 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 boy, I, I can, I can do this. I can make these sounds. Yes. And then I can connect. I can be a part of a, of a, of a, an orchestra or a band uh, and I may not otherwise hang out with that type of person. Um, you know, but you find yourself in a chorus or you find yourself in a orchestra, yeah, right. And there are all kinds of people you wouldn't otherwise choose to be with. and And you know suddenly, you know you're making music together and and you realize, oh man, you know we we have such common ground.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. That reminds me I was for three years, I was the principal guest conductor of opera Africa. And based in Johannesburg. And I will never forget the first time I went um, and I was conducting a production of Puccini's La Boheme. So, of course, there's a very large chorus, there's also a children's chorus. And you know, th- there's a rich choral tradition in South Africa. And I still to this day will never forget hearing that sound of that group of people. And then during the break, you would hear, I'm not two or three languages, but four five six languages being spoken um you know over the break and it was just a great example of what you're talking about about how that's a way for humanity to come together uh to create a miracle i i think that leads perfectly into My last question that I have for you today after this really inspiring conversation, if you could broadcast a simple message about sound or listening that would be translated into every language, what would it be?
2: Take every opportunity you have to make music with yourself, with other people. Musicianship is often thought of in a very lofty, an unattainable level which i think you know to truly be a, a accomplished musician is 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 that but all of us are are deeply musical you know if you look at at a whole population of people everyone has basic musical skills and ability you know there are maybe less than 1% of the mozarts on one side and then there you know maybe less than 1% of people who really are not at all uh, inclined to music, but everyone else is musical. And so my message would be to take every opportunity to sing, you know, sing with your daughter, sing with your kids, Um, you know, make music, make music with your family, make music with your friends.
1: Well, Nina, this has been an incredible conversation. I'm really grateful for it and for you being so generous with your time and I want to encourage all of our listeners to check out your book. It's of sound mind, how our brain constructs a meaningful sonic world. Dr. Nina Krauss, thanks so much for being with me today and for your generosity of spirit and ideas and in every other way. Thank you so much. Well,
2: thank you for the fun we got to have together.
0: Thank you for listening to Listening on Purpose hosted by me, Timothy Myers. I hope you are enjoying our deep dive into the world of listening and are finding it useful in your life. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others or leave a rating and a review. You can visit listeningonpurpose.com to sign up for an email list that includes special episode highlights show notes, and more information about our guests. To find out more about me, please visit timothymyers.com or find me on Facebook at Timothy Myers Conductor or Instagram at Mo T. Myers. Listening On Purpose is a production of Extra Musical. Executive producers are Meredith Carter for EQV Media and yours truly for Extra Musical. Listening on Purpose is edited by Brian Baltischewitz for Balto Creative Media. Original music was composed by DJ Spar and performed by DJ and Kimberly Spar. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time for Listening on Purpose.